que suene. Good morning. I don't want to hear anybody complain about the weather. They canceled church at our church in Minnesota this morning, thanks to about a foot of snow and an inch or so of ice. Gotta love Minnesota. Well, we're continuing in a series of lessons that's taken me 71 years to learn. And I just want to emphasize that I'm telling you my story just as an illustration of his story. What's most important is that you don't know more about me, but you know more about Christ. And that's the, that's the, the purpose and the aim in my sharing my story. Well, let's dig into this. While in seminary, this is interesting that we should have missionaries with us. Because in seminary, I often said to the Lord, I'll serve you anywhere but Africa or Nebraska. I wasn't terribly serious, but in a way I was letting God know that my comfort zone didn't include the jungle or the farm. Uh, kind of like Jonah telling God he wasn't interested in going to Nineveh. So my point is, don't ever tell God what you won't do. <laughs> After serving nine years in California in associate roles, we sensed God calling us into the senior pastorate with nine years of pastoral life experience under our belt, we now felt better equipped for this role than we did after leaving seminary. So the first church to call us to candidate was Central City, Nebraska. <laughs> and you can't get more Nebraska than Central City. The candidating experience started out on a slippery slide, literally, the candidating, um, after nine years of enjoying the extraordinarily modern or moderate climate of the Pacific, California Pacific Coast, our plane landed at the Grand Island Airport in the middle of freezing rain. It was so slippery that the plane nearly slid into the terminal because it couldn't come to a stop. And I knew for certain that God had not called us to Nebraska. Guess what? The church unanimously called me to be their pastor. I was caught between a rock and a very slippery hard space. If I said no to their call, God would certainly be displeased with me <clears throat> because I said I would not serve him in Nebraska. Be careful what you tell God. If I said no, Sherry's folks would be upset because we passed up an opportunity to be closer to home. If I said no, Sherry would be upset because we would not be closer to home. <laughs> However, if I said yes, I would have been of all men most miserable. <laughs> I won't go into detail, but let me just be honest with you, this was not a match. I would have to accept the call for all the wrong reasons. Um, when trying to discern the will of God, I want, don't want you to miss this point. 
We need to clarify our criteria. Everybody else's yes does not necessarily equate with the will of God. When I was thinking of getting married, <clears throat> back before the creation of dirt, um, I went to my seminary advisor and asked him if I should marry Sherry. He said, why are you asking me? <laughs> he said, you can ask 10 different people and get 10 different responses. Then he hit me with this one. What is God leading you to do? Don't misunderstand. It's important to get counsel from people we trust about important decisions we are making. But when push comes to shove, our decisions should not be based on what they tell us, but rather, what is God telling us? John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, and we can be confident that he will listen to us whenever we ask him of anything in line with his will. And if we know he is listening, and if we know he is listening when we make our request, we can be sure that he will give us what we ask for. In Matthew 7, verse 7, keep on asking and you will be given what you ask for. Keep on looking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and the door is open to everyone who knocks. Most of the time, most of the time, it isn't an issue of discerning God's will. More often than not, we aren't even looking for God's will. We're looking for the fulfillment of our own expectations and the procurement of a comfort zone. We're trying to make other people and ourselves happy. As I said last week, there is absolutely nothing holy and sacred about our comfort zones. Comfort zones are to the Christian pilgrimage, excuse me, Christian pilgrim, what quicksand and sinkholes are to the unsuspecting traveler. In fact, if we truly desire to know the heart of God on a matter, he will show us. If we truly desire to know his heart, he's a good father. He won't hide it from us. He will show us. I said I needed to wrestle in prayer over this decision. My decision had to be made objectively and not solely on other people's expectations. God gave, made it clear to me that I was not a match for this church. And after the decision had been made, Sherry agreed, Sherry's folks agreed, the district superintendent of the denomination agreed, more important than all of these people, I believe God agreed. Soon after that, we did sense that God was calling us to Blairstown, New Jersey. This would involve a coast-to-coast -coast move and transplanting our girls into a new school in January. The move didn't get us appreciably closer to either set of parents. Blairstown EFC at the time was a 10-year-old church plant Blairstown was good to us. This being our first senior pastor role meant that we had a lot to learn. The people in Blairstown were patient. However, in the beginning, there were some in the church that judged the book by the cover. They thought that the cover of the book, longer hair, beard, 
suntan, and nine years in California indicated that the book was more liberal, less evangelical, and softer on the edges. Many liked that. Many were looking for that in a pastor, but they didn't get that in a pastor. I may have looked like a liberal California hippie. That was my, that was my Aunt Faye's description of me. Uh, but I was theologically very conservative. At one board meeting, a woman said, well, let's face it, Pastor Dave is more evangelical than the rest of us. A little over a year later, the chairman of the church came to our house and said there, that there was going to be a meeting and we were not invited. Topic, dismissal of the pastor. The chairman and his wife said that they would come over to our house after the meeting and let us know the outcome. Nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. Sensing our fate was determined, I called my folks in Michigan and asked if we could move in with them. Sometime after midnight, the chairman and his wife arrived at our door. Result of the meeting, Pastor Dave is our pastor. You can get on board or leave the boat and several decided to jump ship, but the majority stayed on for the ride. What Blairstown did that night is what some churches never do, and here's my point. They determined who they were and where they were going. Something Grace Chapel is in the process of doing. And I commend, and I want you to hear this, I don't have a lot of time to commend things and to applaud things, but I commend the leadership of Grace Chapel for the diligent leadership they are giving to this church. And I hope you all appreciate their leadership. I think it would be a good time to give an applause to the leadership of the church right now. Like Grace Chapel, God now had a cohesive group of people who desired to follow him into the future. They had clarity of vision. They put themselves into a position to receive the blessings of God on their ministry. We began to take God seriously. We started looking into the scriptures to see what the people of God were supposed to be. For example, James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and lasting religion and the sight of God our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. Allow me to tell you a few stories of what this looks like. Thus, the title of my sermon this morning, A House Full of Women. That was meant to get you back from last Sunday. We lived in the church parsonage. It was a comfortable home in the woods for the four of us, but God has a sense of humor. He thought we had too much room. He thought I needed more women in my life. I guess at one time I thought that too, but um, <laughs> he wanted to know if we were serious about being the church. And if we were, how were we going to work out that verse in James? Well, the home of a divorced woman in our church and her teenage daughter burned to the ground. Um, they had no place to live, so we invited Linda and Eve to live with us. And did I mention that we had one bathroom? Not long after, a young woman came to town to marry one of our guys. She, she had nowhere to live. I remember I said, God has a sense of humor. 
He thought we had too much room. He thought I needed more women in my life. We invited Sue to live with us. Did I mention, I want you to get this point, we had one bathroom. <laughs> Sherry, Heidi, Corey, Linda, Eve, Sue, and Dave. <laughs> and one bathroom. And this is the clincher. Even our dog was a female. <laughs> Eventually, Linda and Eve found a home and Sue married, but the months with six women in my life proved to be an unforgettable experience. Pure and lasting religion in the sight of God our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows and their troubles. That wasn't just randomly placed in the scripture. It's what the expectation is for us. Sherry and I started a small group navigator discipleship study. We met at Dave and Debbie's house, and Debbie was a nurse, and Dave, the general manager of a lumber company. Ironically, they visited us two weeks ago. Debbie was a brand new Christian. She was growing deeper and deeper in her walk with Christ. Debbie grew up Catholic and Dave grew up Presbyterian. She invited Sherry and me over for dinner one evening. And after dinner, she said, and I'm not recommending that you do this. She said, Pastor Dave, is it true that if my David doesn't invite Jesus into his life, he will go to hell? Now, what do you say? What's that? <laughs> That's what I said. Um, and the neat, it, the neat response of Dave was, Pastor, tell it like it is. I won't reject you. We continued to pray for David's salvation, and one evening after dinner, he came up to Debbie in the kitchen and said, I'm ready. And Debbie had the wonderful privilege of leading her husband to Jesus. There was a beautiful young girl in our church in New Jersey by the name of Cheryl Stefanesi. After a few weeks, just a few weeks after graduating from high school, she and her boyfriend went across the river to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania to see a movie. They were on their way home a little after midnight and an older man with Alzheimer's was heading the wrong way on I-80 and hit them head on. I got the phone call. Both kids died that night. Cheryl came from a strong Italian Catholic family. However, I think only Cheryl and her mom had a personal relationship with Jesus. But before the funeral, both their dad and mom gave their lives to Christ. The graveside service was held in East Jersey. It was everything you'd picture of an Italian graveside service. Cheryl's mom stood with a hand on her daughter's casket, a smile on her face, and tears streaming down her eyes as she testified of her daughter's love for Jesus and that though she missed her daughter terribly, she knew that someday she would be in heaven with her. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, And now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know what will happen to the Christians who have died so that you will not be full of sorrow like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus comes, God will bring back with Jesus all the Christians 
who have died. Bruce Swanson was a banker in East Jersey. Bruce and his wife Wanda had four children and lived in Blairstown. Bruce and Wanda asked us to come to the hospital with them for some routine tests that Bruce was going to have done. The doctor said it was probably nothing, but to be on the safe side, they would check it out. That nothing turned out to be cancer, and that cancer was aggressive. And later, the four of us traveled to Manhattan's Sloan Kettering Hospital. Our hope? Successful surgery to remove the cancer. Several hours later, the doctor came out of the wait to the waiting room and told us that the cancer had spread too far. There was nothing that could be done. We should take Bruce home to prepare to die. I remember taking a long walk with Bruce near his home. We all know we're going to die. Bruce knew it was going to be soon. It was a man-to-man -man talk that didn't include sports or weather. Bruce was concerned that he hadn't clearly defined his relationship with Jesus with his banking buddies. He was also concerned that he'd never been baptized. And even though we both knew that baptism had nothing to do with his eternal security, he thought this might be the best way for him to witness to his peers. So he invited all of his associates to his baptismal service. And normally they'd never come to such a thing. But this was different. Bruce was going to die. And they wanted to hear what a dying man had to say. He asked Ed Benson, another banking friend in our church, to assist. And we gathered around Lou and Flo Guerin's backyard pool in the middle of a driving rainstorm. And there that dying man poured out his heart that afternoon. Soon Bruce was confined to his hospital bed as the evil cancer eroded his life. In the waiting room down the hall, visitors had started a jigsaw puzzle. Each day, visitors would work on that puzzle and it would come nearer to completion. On the day Bruce died, the puzzle was completed except for one missing piece. For many of us who have lost family and friends, there's one missing piece. And every time we try to complete the puzzle, that missing piece stands out. That story was similarly repeated in our church in Becker, Minnesota, as we watched a dear friend with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, prepare for his home in heaven. As I spent time with Wayne, I often thought about Bruce. Both of these dear friends of mine loved Jesus so very much and wanted others to have the same hope of eternal life in heaven. Both men and their wives saw the otherwise life-destroying illnesses as opportunities to be witnesses for Jesus. I'm going to let you, Wayne tell you the story himself before he died. It was probably March of 2006 when I initially noticed something. Wayne and I had gone for a walk. And as we were walking, I noticed his left foot was slapping the pavement. And I asked him what that was, and he, he said nothing, of course. It was a non-issue. It was getting on with my life and doing everything else, and that was just a bothersome thing. In June, when we went to the neurologist, 
and the neurologist ran all of the tests and said he had expected to find something like a brain tumor or something, but he could find nothing. Um, I bordered on being very thankful to God that there was nothing, but yet um, I noticed Wayne was not able to stand at all on his left foot. It, it was impossible, he couldn't do it. And so I knew there was something wrong. And I was scared. I was scared of that because of the unknown. And then um, Wayne continued to have some problems, so we were recommended to another neurologist, and this is months have gone by. And the, the, uh, the second neurologist, again, said, I can't figure it out. And I asked God, I said, God, I know you know what it is, and I kept searching his word, and, and it kept coming back to me that um, I need to give it more time, Joy. At the, in, at the right time, you will know. I still thought it was just a, I don't know, maybe a pinch nerve, maybe a process of getting old. But that's what I thought. I'm just getting, I'm, I'm just getting old and my legs are getting weak. So we went to the Mayo Clinic and we had been there um, for two, two days at the point where when I walked in the second morning into the clinic, I just was overcome with, I don't know what it was, I just started to, to cry. I just knew, I knew we were at a point in our life that things were going to change. Our discussion between Joy and I was, whatever it is, <clears throat> whatever it is, we'll deal with it. One of the doctors told Wayne, just at a regular visit, we were just having, we were going to get some help for his physical, but she told us that Wayne did have ALS. So Wayne and I looked at each other and we said, God is good, and he, all the time. And we, we cried, but um, the doctors just gave us our time and they asked me what I knew about ALS, or asked us what we knew. And Wayne said he didn't know anything, and he, uh, he didn't. And I said, well, I, I did a little bit of studying on this, and all I can really remember right now in this room is two to five years, that's all I can remember. And they said, you're right. Then they proceeded to tell us what, what that is. It's a, it's a it's your nerve, your motor neurons in your back are, are, have died and you're, they're not sending signals to your muscles and the muscles don't think they're needed anymore so they, they're, they're going away, they're shrinking. Okay, this is, this is what it is. This, so now we have to learn how to live with it. I just remembered that God was good all the time. And I thank God for giving us those months where we could, where I could really truly believe that and feel that at that point. If you look at the big picture of it, it's, uh, it's, it's not tragic <laughs> because everybody's gonna die. And if you know where you're going, then it's not tragic. It's, it's a blessing. The part about checking out early or whatever you want to say doesn't bother me. The part that bothers me is I won't get to see my grandchildren. Someone that has changed. When I have a grandchild here in January, our youngest and 
the only one that's not married to get married in January. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be part of that. So, some of that is, I'm gonna be able to see some of that. So, God is good. Here I am, Lord, and I'm drowning. Joy and I were told if we want to do anything, we should do it now. So in June, we went to Ireland. When we were over there, we wouldn't talk about what was going on. But the last day, we, we kind of had to talk about it. There was, I, I was, uh, I had trouble walking. Didn't know I was gonna get home. But, so, from that we led into, okay, when we get home, how, what are we gonna do then? I still have a job. Okay, so when I get home, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to retire. Stepped in and saved the day. We got home, and we were home one full day, and then the next evening, uh, one of the, my friends from work stopped in and we sat around, we talked for a while, you know, and it was okay, everything's okay. And then as he was leaving, he, he gave me this envelope and he said, um, I don't want you to open that till I leave. Um, I opened it after he left and, and the way things are going right now, I'll be able to work or be an employee till June or July of next year. So they gave me a lot of vacation. Not, it was over half a year's vacation. He always said he had a hard time sharing his faith because he didn't know how to do that. He didn't want people to think he was strange or odd and he could never figure out how to open that door for people and now he can, he can go to work and um, his coworkers think he's in denial or what's wrong with you or how can you believe that or think that way, you know. Um, so Wayne can tell him, he can explain to him, them now and it's opened the door for Wayne. I say, why me? Why me, Lord? Not because why do I get to have this disease, why, why do I have to go through this? But who am I, who am I that you should choose me to do your work? Who am I? I still can use my legs, I can still use my hand, I can still talk to you, but when that all goes away, I'm, <clears throat> I pray that I still have the same faith I have today. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way? 1 Corinthians 15, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blink of the eye when the last trumpet is blown, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. 
our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory through sin, over sin, and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. At my friend Bruce's funeral, a soloist in our church sang the song, Finally Home. When engulfed by the terror of tempestuous sea, unknown waves before you roll, at the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding it God's, and breathing new air and finding it celestial, and waking up in glory and finding at home. What's the greatest lesson I learned through these experiences? Maybe a little different than you would expect, but I think the greatest lesson is that the church is a body and we need each other. Whether it involves a house full of women or facing death with a friend. A few weeks ago in my message on marriage, we took a look at Ecclesiastes 4. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people living close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple-braided cord is not easily broken. And I believe that's what God desires for Grace Chapel, the value of relationships centered in Christ. And let me close with Job chapter 29, verse 4. I love this. When I was in my prime, God's friendship was felt in my home. Our prayer, Sherry, and my prayer for Grace Chapel is that God's friendship would be felt here at Grace Chapel and not only felt, known here at Grace Chapel. There's a chorus that I think fits for closing. I won't sing it. That wouldn't fit. Um, but you, you're familiar with it. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. God Almighty, Lord of glory, you have called me friend. It's my prayer that each of us here this morning would know that God is their friend. And then no matter what you're facing, it's not a problem. Because God, the Almighty Lord of glory calls you friend. Father, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your friendship that has been evident in times of my life personally when 
Um, I had a house full of women. Uh, I was facing death with a friend. To know that you went through these experiences with me and that we saw your hand of mercy, a hand of care, your hand of love extended. And I pray that here for Grace Chapel, that the people of Grace Chapel, from the leadership on down, would be known as people who are the friend of God. May it be so in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.